Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, Episode 108, The Battle of Guadalajara. Last time, Franco's latest attempt to surround the Republican capital, it would be called the Battle of Jarama, had started on February 6th, after the rains had stopped. The idea was for the Nationalist forces south of Madrid to push up towards the northeast, while Mussolini's volunteers met them halfway, coming down to the southwest. Once the two parts of this pincer met, Madrid would be cut off from any further help from the east. Problem was, the Italians weren't in place yet, so there would be no help coming from the north. Still, the nationalist initial phase of the offensive had started well enough. The two ends of their front line managed to gain ground, but the defending Republican center held, more or less, due to a 700-meter-high hill. But then the nationalist General Mola threw in the last of his reserves. Again, the line, in general, started moving further east. But the cost of this limited success, in terms of lives, was staggering. By mid-February, both sides were exhausted again. And so a lull came over the front. Still, Franco and General Pozas planned for renewed fighting. On February 21st, the rains stopped again. Both sides were grateful, but still tired, so no action was taken. The Tallman Battalion, one of the international brigades, threw off the Spaniards' notion of machismoism and deepened their trenches. Better to fight from behind cover than to die on one's feet. Now that the Republican forces were resting, they had time to reflect on the most recent fighting. More than one of them remembered their unit's political officer, a commissar, shouting during the fighting, Stand and die, or not one centimeter back. This, of course, was after the bullets had run out, and the commissar was really only thinking about his life. In that same vein, an American unit of the Lincoln Battalion realized that their English officer, who was not really a gentleman, was going to get them all killed. So they tried to solve this problem by hanging him. The fake barely got away. Then the Americans elected their own officer. The overall tactical situation had not changed very much. The Valencia Road was still open to the Republicans. The Italians still had yet to move out. But the Nationalists, they had lost many of their best troops. It is estimated that both sides lost about 12,000 men. Unfortunately for the Republicans, now that the Condor Legion was in operation, after each battle, the Germans examined their actions, tinkering and tweaking their tactics ever so much. For the Battle of Jarama, their Ju-52s were used more effectively to deal with the Soviet T-26 tanks. Further, the Germans taught the other pilots how to handle the Soviet Chaktos with their Fiat CR-32 fighters. As the men of both sides were resting during the middle and late into February, the Nationalists had only lost one Fiat. The Republicans ate Chaktos. That would not change. Though the Republicans had held their ground, their officers were still fighting each other back in Madrid over the loss of Malaga even though that had been an impossible situation. The communists, always trying to get more of their own within the Largo government, asked that General Asensio Torado be removed. Their argument was that Malaga had been lost because Torado did not get enough ammunition to the front in time. A weak argument, to be sure, but they were hoping that this drip, drip, drip of accusation would gather momentum. At one point, the communists, on orders from Moscow, had even tried to curry favor with Torado, flattering him exceedingly. Yet the Spaniard stayed focused on accusing the leftists of infiltrating the assault guard, which they were indeed doing. But finally, Largo removed Torado on February 21st to appease Stalin, the giver of tanks. Yet the Prime Minister, 
tricked the Soviets by replacing the Undersecretary of War with another one of his friends instead of a communist. The other battle taking place in Madrid was won by General Miaha, as he had been given General Pozas command of the Southern Front, and Miaha was about to go up against Franco's most experienced field officer, Colonel Iglesias Varela. General Franco decided the time had come to renew the offensive to the south of the capital. His forces would push to the northeast and make for Guadalajara along the Madrid-Saragossa road. When they met up with the Italians coming southwest, the main road would be cut off and any Republican forces between them crushed. By late February, the Italian general Raota had some 35,000 troops almost ready at their jump-off points, divided into four divisions. General Copi's Llamas Negras Division, General Nuvolini's Flechas Negras, General Rossi's Diolo Vuela Division, and General Bergonzoli's Littorio Division. The last one of Bergonzoli's was made up of regular officers and conscripts. The others were of fascist militia. This lone professional division also had four companies of Fiat Ansaldo light tanks, 1,500 trucks, 160 field guns, and four squadrons of Fiat CR-32 fighters. However, fog and swampy airfields, because of the rains, removed the aircraft from any serious participation. Of course, the Republicans knew that a threat was building near Guadalajara, so one company of T-26 tanks was sent to reinforce the 12th Division there, under Colonel Lacalle, and even then Lacalle's force was nowhere near strong enough to handle the Italians. By early March, it was harder to tell who was more anxious to get started, Franco or Mussolini. The former was convinced of an eventual victory, thanks to the Italians. As a matter of fact, so was the latter, as he would reap all the honor of his men. So Il Duce pushed his men, screaming at them in messages to get started, which they did on March 8th. As for Franco's men, they moved out, having previously gained the eastern side of the Jarama River. However, they weren't going much further. No matter what they tried, the Republican militia, along with the international brigades, now rested, held them back. The high ground held by the Republicans may not have been as tall as the hills on the western side of the river, but they were high enough. No, if there was going to be a victory, it would have to come from the Italians, which suited Mussolini well enough when he heard about Franco's difficulties. As dawn broke on March 8th, Copi's motorized Black Flames Division, with Fiat and Saldos, or light tanks, and armored cars leading the way, made for the sparse Republican lines. When contact was made, the Italians barely had to slow down. To their right, General Moscardo's 2nd Brigade equally shattered the line in front of his forces. But as the 2nd Brigade was on foot, their advance soon slowed down as the men tired. The men of Copi's division, riding in lorries, soon sped on ahead and alone. For the first 48 hours into the advance, the Italians kept moving, but ended up slowing down as the weather began to go against them. By the night of March 9th, the Italians stopped to rest their men, while widening the gaps they had created in the Republican line. It may not have been as adventurous or sexy, but military prudence demanded it. What if somehow the defenders closed those lines and the Italians needed to retreat? Stranger things had happened in war. With the advance stalled, if only from exhaustion and cold, many of the Italians who had been rushed to the front were still wearing their tropical uniforms. General Rauta began to worry as the Republicans might take this opportunity to seize the momentum for themselves. He sent message after message to Franco, asking for a major push. But the nationalists to the southwest were still unable to move the line in front of them. The Germans, who looked on, 
or got reports back in Berlin, could only shake their heads. Franco's men were clearly not that fierce, and equally clear, the Italians had not been trained for an armored operation. The advance, according to their studies, could never be allowed to stop once it started, even if just a small number of tanks continued on. It would ensure that the enemy was always reeling backwards, unable to stabilize their lines. To his credit, General Miaja, along with Colonel Vicente Rojo, in command of the East, reacted much faster than they had during the first attempt of Franco's pincer. Right away, reinforcements were rushed east from Madrid, and the command chain was reorganized. Colonel Enrique Jurado was told to form the 4th Corps, and his headquarters would be at Guadalajara, near the main road. As for the communist tank commander, Lister's division was placed in the center of this newly forming line, a few miles up the road, while Cipriano Mera's 14th division took the right flank, and Colonel Lacalle's 12th division took the left. Yacalle, who was angered at not being given the top position, would bow out, saying he was seriously ill. An Italian communist, Nino Nanetti, would end up taking his place. The Black Flames and Black Arrows Italian divisions reached Briguega on March 10th. The old walled town was south of the main road, so on the Italians' left flank, and now about 15 miles from the Republican defensive line. Right away, Colonel Geraldo, the new 4th Corps commander, sent his Italian Garibaldi Battalion of the 12th International Brigade up to face this threat. Ironically, one of the 12th's patrols ran into another Italian unit, but they were fighting Mussolini. The fascists called up light tanks and soon, in the middle of the Spanish Civil War, was an Italian Civil War, as the two groups faced off. The communist officers of the Republican side tried to fight with more brain than brawn, as leaflets were dropped on the fascists, saying that a cash prize would be granted if the men came over to the defenders. The ruse didn't work, and soon Mussolini's men used their armored cars and light tanks to push back the defensive line south of the main road. Lister's troops seemed about to break as they continued to backpedal, but soon, on March 11th, the Dalman Battalion showed up to offer support. The line was reformed. The defenders held. Next day, March 12th, the Republican forces, now having more men moved up, counterattacked. Typically, the pushback would not have been that successful, not against armored cars and light tanks. However, the Republicans had nearby, at Barsette, to the south, a concrete airstrip. The rains could not make it unusable, as the fascists had to deal with. As Lister's tanks and troops ran at the fascists, there were a few Chato and Mosca fighters, along with two squadrons of Katsuka bombers, overhead. This combination of ground pressure and air attacks, further assisted by the recently arrived Soviet armor, forced the nationalists back. The Italian legionary air force, with its complement of fiats, continued to attempt to get off the ground, as their comrades were pushed back, but could not. Back towards Briguega, the fascists came. General Rauta then tried a bit of sleight of hand, by ordering the reshuffling of his motorized divisions. Yet the only result of this was to have many of his armored cars and light tanks get stuck in the mud to then be bombed by the Republican aircraft overhead. Now that the Nationalist left flank, the Republicans' right, was backpedaling, this left the Nationalist center exposed. It had gotten as far as Torija along the main road, but now itself was falling back. So, as Lister's 11th Division, with its 2nd Brigade in the lead, pushing on the Nationalist left, as that unit had turned off the main road to head towards Briguega, this left the rest of the 11th International Brigade to continue forcing back the enemy center along the main or Saragossa road. Soon the city of Torija was retaken, but Lister's men in the center 
did not stop there. They pushed on another ten miles or so, making for the next major city, Triqueque, as the nationalists were not given time to reform their lines. With the Republicans now firmly in control of the momentum, it was time to finish off the invading Italians. The plan for the next day, March 13th, was to have Colonel Cipriano Mera's 14th Division hit the beleaguered Italians who were stationed at Briguega from the southeast. Franco's chief of operations, Colonel Barrasso, had warned the Italians that this might happen. But whether it was due to Mussolini's impetuousness or the local commander's overconfidence, it was not planned for. General Pavlov spent the morning of the 13th gathering and organizing his T-26s and his infantry. But at noon, the advance started. The tanks were coming in the center, along the Saragossa Road, with his infantry support on either side. Luckily for them, the Italians on up ahead, who were thinking of and planning their own counter-strike, were not set up in defensive measures. When the Russian tanks came their way, the Italians were all conveniently lined up. The tanks came on. Some of the Italian infantry carriers were unable to get out of the way in time and were simply run over by the Soviet tanks. As for Pavlov's tanks on either end of their formation, they had exhausted infantry riding atop. Soon these men jumped down and shot up an Italian unit hiding in a ravine. The center push was coming along nicely. Now it was time to push out the Italians, hold up in the town of Triqueque. However, there, a machine gun unit was in place, and these men were dug in for defense. Worse, the Republican infantry was also met by Italian Fiat Ansaldo miniature tanks, which had flamethrowers attached. This combination with the Republicans' fatigue, many of them had been rushed up the night before, were unable to continue the offensive. As the Italians had been readying for their own offensive, an infantry battalion, which had been hiding in a nearby olive grove, now came out and charged at the tired Republicans. This combination of Italian infantry, flamethrowing tanks, and machine guns now came at the Republicans. In response, Major Pondo and Colonel Alexander Romirtsev at the scene, grabbed their own machine gun units and placed them atop a small nearby hill. As quickly as the Italian counterattack had started, it fizzled out. This gave Lister time to bring up more relatively fresh infantry, along with more T-26 tanks. Together, they pushed back the Italians, who could have made a mess and a hole in the Republican center. As the area was secured, Pando and Radimstev ran over to the hill to thank and, frankly, hug the personnel of the machine gun unit. In charge of them was Captain Incarnacion Luna, one of the few women in a command position. When they found her, Luna was calmly brushing out her hair, which had gotten entangled during the climb up the hill and then during their subsequent attack. Victory was made nicer by looking one's best. As for the other part of the Republican offensive that was to be led by Mera and his 14th Battalion, coming from the southeast, that wasn't going so well. Before they could hit the Italians in their relative rear, the 14th would have to cross the river Tijuna, and since they feared the Italians crossing it to come at them, explosives had been placed along the local bridge. Yet that did not seem to be a potential danger now, as the Italians were having a hard time just holding their own center and left. However, due to miscommunication, the bridge was blown up anyway, just before the 14th could begin to cross. The Republican coup de grace, or blow of mercy, could now not be given to the Italians. But luckily for Mera, local CNT members who knew the area well showed the 14th's commander the best place to lay down pontoon bridges. It would take time, but it could still work. By the morning of March 18th, the bridges were laying, and the 14th began to cross. But by then, a heavy sleet was coming down. The good news was that this blocked the Italians from seeing the 14th approach and set up on a nearby hill, 
where they placed what few guns they had. The bad news was that the weather was stopping the Republicans from coming at the Italians in multiple directions, along with their air force. The militia forces waited for hours in the cold, hoping the weather would clear. And this finally happened around noon. And then Lister gave the order for the general offensive. On came Lister's division along the main road. Overhead were Chato's and Cuiscas. To the right of the main road, the 2nd Brigade matched their advance. Along the center, on the main road, Lister's men and tanks ran right into Bergozzoli's Littorio division. The Italians were totally unprepared and thus overwhelmed. What's more, Mera's men were finally coming in from the southeast. The town of Bruguega was hit from almost all sides. Almost. The now Italian defenders held out as best they could, but panic was in the air, and it was contagious. The Republican forces continued to push on the Italians, who never stopped giving ground. But when darkness came, the Littorio Division made good its escape. Fortunately for them, they had many trucks to carry away their undead. Still, some 5,000 of them were scattered amongst the various battlefields. The Spaniards and foreign soldiers had just scored a great victory. The way to the east still lay open. The victors sat down and rested. Food and cigarettes, not to mention new shoes, were brought to them by mule. Mussolini screamed in outrage when he heard the news of the defeat. Franco, however, took it in stride and insisted that it was not a nationalist defeat, but an Italian one. The Spanish general was learning to reevaluate the Italians and their leader. As for Stalin and his communists, who were assisting the Republicans, the Soviet leader started recalling many of those officers back to Moscow, and many of them would not return to Spain. The Great Purge was underway. For those outside Spain who supported the Republican government, they shouted this victory of Guadalajara to the skies. Here was the turning point. Here was the beginning of victory. Here was the beginning of the end of fascism. And yet, for Mussolini, it was another rallying point from which to spring to gain his revenge. He, in a fit of rage and shame, doubled down on helping Franco. More money equipment, and men would be sent to Spain. Things that Italy could ill afford. General Rota was replaced with General Ettore Pastico. As for the Germans, the only professional soldiers of this entire episode, a report was sent around that said, the defeat was of no great military importance, to be sure. But on the other hand, it had unfavorable psychological and political reactions, which needed to be stamped out by a military victory. And more than ever before, Franco knew he now had to take the long view. The Republican forces had to be wiped out. Their strongholds, at least those that seemed vulnerable, had to be reduced. And this meant the Republican area along the Bay of Biscay in the north. Only then could Madrid be taken. Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, Episode 109, The Biscay Campaign. Last time, the Republicans had just scored a major victory at Guadalajara, east of Madrid, in March of 1937. And yet, it's not as if Franco had just lost tens of thousands of men. No, the defeat was suffered by the Italians. But no matter, Mussolini would only send more and Franco, now that he fully realized this would be a war of attrition, accepted them. Now that Franco had failed four times to take Madrid, he was in a more pliant mood when the Germans came calling and suggested that it was time to focus on the North. What they didn't say was that, one, Berlin was interested in the steel and coal of the area, 
as Nazi Germany was increasing the pace of its armament. Hitler knew that it was only a matter of time before Western Europe grew tired of his territorial ambitions and actually stood up to him. Besides, and this was the second reason, he, Hitler, had put the world on notice right before the Battle of Guadalajara that Germany was withdrawing from the restrictions of the Versailles Treaty. And since, roughly at the same time, the League of Nations Non-Intervention Committee had banned foreign nationals from fighting in the Spanish War, there, Spain, was the perfect place to draw the eyes of Europe. For Hitler was thinking of the future Greater Germany. Austria would be brought into the fold, and then Czechoslovakia. But one thing at a time. The Germans calmly explained that as central, southern, and eastern Spain had been tried, it was time to turn to the north, to the Catabrian coast. After all, if the north could be secured, then those nationalist troops could be freed up, giving Franco the numerical superiority he needed. He, Franco, had already used overwhelming force in the south. It was now time to repeat that, but in the north. Only then could the center of the country be focused on. But what would make it hard for Prime Minister Lago Caballero and his government to help defend the North was that the entire Cantabrian community of central northern Spain, with its main city, Santander, the Principality of Asturias in the northwest, with its capital of Aviedo, and the Basque country, with its capital of Bilbao, just right of center in northern Spain. None of these areas had cooperated with the Republican government by their own choice. Truth be told, they cared little for Franco, who wanted to control all of Spain, but only a little bit more for Madrid, who sought a large centralized government. The governing entities to the north were only Madrid's allies in that they would attack anyone who tried to invade them. The Basques told the Republican government this, and Largo went along, though he did not mention this to his army commanders. The various peoples of the North, understanding the threat that Franco posed, formed their own Basque Nationalist Party. Their elected leader was the 32-year-old José Antonio Aguirre, and set up their own loosely federated government, with its own currency, flag, and administration. Aguirre's cabinet had four Basque nationalists, three socialists, two Republicans, a communist, and one social democratic Basque action member. In late 1936, as Franco attempted a quick victory, the Basques rid themselves of their civil and assault guards and formed their own Basque-speaking militia. The chosen men were nicely dressed, but heavily armed, and only cared for their own. The North chose the side of Madrid, but it promised to leave them alone once the war was over. And it must be said that the people of the North were realists and felt that Franco would win. So whenever they captured a nationalist soldier, he was treated well and eventually released. But Franco would not return this favor. But it was the best they could do to appease, as they saw it, the eventual winner. Up to this point, there had only been two large-scale battles in the north. The first we mentioned was the siege of Oviedo in the northwest, where Colonel Antonio Aranda Mata was in charge of the garrison there. When the rebellion was launched, Aranda told the local governor and union leaders that his loyalty was to the republic. In fact, the civil and military leaders trusted him so much that when other parts of the north requested assistance, some 4,000 miners turned soldiers were sent away. But that's when Aranda quietly called in the civil and assault guards, who were pro-Franco. Just two days into the rebellion, on July 19th, Aranda, now with military support, declared Oviedo for the nationalists. The areas to the east and west of Oviedo were still with the Republicans, but Aranda had a firm control on the Asturias capital. Aranda quickly reconnoitered the town and put his 3,000 men in key positions. Of course, he did not have enough men to place on every height in this hilly and mountainous region, but he believed 
it would be enough. After all, just three years earlier, Madrid had sent to the area a large number of machine guns and one million rounds of ammunition. Now Aranda had them spread out all around Oviedo, facing outward. Of course, the miners of the north realized they had been tricked and so wanted to rush home to their families. But there was another nationalist holdout nearby at Gijón to the east that had to be dealt with. Like at Oviedo, the nationalists at Gijón were surrounded by Republican militia and allied anarchists. Those nationalists barricaded themselves in and lasted until August 21st, just over one month. But now all the forces not guarding a certain location or a bridge could concentrate on Oviedo. The siege there started on July 20th, as some of the miners immediately turned around when they heard of Aranda's trickery. But though the miners were desperate to get word of their families and friends, the task before them would not be easy. Miners, they may have been, but there was nary a professional soldier among them. Further, they had no proper siege equipment, just dynamite, and that risked the innocent as well as the guilty inside the city. What's more, a nationalist relief force was on its way from Galicia, the far northwestern corner of Spain. As the surrounding area was dominated by unions, two of its men rose to lead the siege. Otero, a socialist miner, and Carosera, an anarchist steelworker. Again, they might not have been soldiers or professional siegers, but they knew what they were about. First thing, the water supply to Oviedo was cut off, but Aranda quickly gained control of the city reservoir. No one would be allowed to take baths, but there would be enough water, for now, for those nationalist forces inside to survive. As for food, that, at the outset, was not a concern. The two Union leaders surveyed their perimeter and eventually came up with a rather straightforward plan. Their attack would commence on September 4th. Up until that day, the now-attackers traded shots with the besieged, testing their defenses. But on September 4th, the town was subjected to aerial and artillery bombardment, as some 1,500 explosives were either dropped or shot into the town. The attackers' main goal was to cut the town's gas, telephone system, and electricity, and they succeeded. During the build-up to this bombardment, the Unionists also had other men put to work, men with varying skills. So, four days after the bombing, a steamroller, recently covered in armor, led an attack against Aranda's furthest outpost. The idea was to reduce one after the other to show the Nationalists the hopelessness of their situation. However, Aranda, known for being clever, had several piles of sandbags constructed on which large guns were placed. With their increased height came a longer range. Those guns then took aim at the steamroller and the men hiding behind it. The fighting was fierce. The miners wanted to liberate their families, the nationalists knowing what would happen to them if captured. This life-and-death battle went on for twelve hours, each side switching out men to keep fresh bodies in the fray. But eventually, the nationalist guns, with their increased range, drove the attackers back. Of course, the besiegers must have known that civilians were going to die during the fighting. They could only hope it wouldn't be one of their family members. But if the shells or bombs didn't get them, the typhoid that came might have. Then again, as the men outside continued to shell and bomb Oviedo throughout September, this only increased the chance that some of their family would not be alive when this was over. When October 4th came, the Popular Front of the North units, outside the wall town, launched an all-out assault. The day was not only the second anniversary of the Asturias Revolution, but the Army of Africa relief column that was attempting to make its way to help Aranda, having been held up for the last two weeks by other labor units, had itself just been reinforced by other nationalist units. As such, Aranda's only hope was just 15 miles away. 
By the time of this latest militia attack, Aranda had lost about half of his 3,000-man force and more than half of his ammunition. One of his high ground positions had also been lost that day. As for the attackers, they, sensing that something had changed, there were certainly fewer defenders than before, continued to press their assault for an entire week. By the end of that time, Aranda was down to fewer men and only 10% of his ammunition. Aranda realized that he didn't have enough men to hold the perimeter, so pulled back his remaining force to the town only. The miners and other blue-collar workers came over and through the undefended walls. The fighting now became a combination of house-to-house and hide-and-seek. The desperate attackers, still looking for their families, cut holes in walls, which allowed them to go from house to house, without going out into the streets or entering by a front door, thereby exposing themselves. By this phase of the battle, Aranda's men had run out of bullets, so the fighting de-evolved to hand-to-hand combat. As it seemed the Nationalists were to be slaughtered in someone's living room, Nationalist aircraft dropped 30,000 rounds. Aranda's men, well, some of them, managed to reload their guns, which slowed down the militia's advance. By now, Aranda only had about 500 men left. These he gathered into the center of town. His strategy had stayed the same since day one, to hold out long enough for help to arrive. The attackers had also lost many men, by some accounts, about 5,000. But like two heavyweight boxers having made it to the twelfth round, both sides kept fighting, though exhausted. The militia continued to make progress, but it was slow going. Aranda, with his now little band, encamped themselves in the barracks of the enemy. But on October 16th, the relief force finally fought its way through to Oviedo. The militia was too tired to take on this fresh force. Their offensive was over. With Union forces still on either side of the town, Aranda used the relief force to keep open a corridor for further supplies and reinforcements. The town itself would be held by the Nationalists until the end of the war in the North, which would be over the following year. As for the militia, they returned to their starting point. Ironically, the Nationalists did not shoot any of the civilians as they had in other areas. Any dead civilians here were due to bombs and shells. And the Nationalists had not shot them because the people inside were mostly neutral. They just wanted to be left alone. The other major action in the North, already discussed, was the Basque attempt to take Vitoria, the capital city of the Alava province close to the coast, near the French border. The Basques were allied with Republicans, but again, only because Madrid promised to leave them alone after the war was over. So the locals sought to rid the area of the Nationalists. As Franco's forces held Vitoria, on November 30th, the Basque forces, led by General Francisco Llano de la Encomienda, gathered some 4,000 men though he had little air or artillery support, and readied them to retake it. Having set up his men at Villa Real, about three kilometers north of Vitoria, Llano planned to begin his assault, when his force was spotted by a nationalist scout plane. The enemy went on high alert and called in reinforcements. With the element of surprise over, the Basques started shelling the town with what few guns they had. One attack after another was launched at the Nationalists in Vitoria, one on December 13th and another on December 18th, but they could not gain entry. Furthermore, they lost some 1,000 men in their attempts. As the quick strike was blunted, other Nationalist forces, led by Colonel Camillo Vega, came to Vitoria's rescue. Then the fresh Nationalist forces started their own assault. The Basques were pushed away by December 24th. The only good news for them was that they now held the mountains of Moroto, Albertia, and Jarinto. And though they quickly started entrenching themselves there, 
Their defenses only considered repulsing a ground assault. No thought was given to anti-air measures. Now that spring had come, 1937, the Basque nationalists, not to be confused with Franco's nationalists, and their various allies had organized into 46 battalions. The Basque represented half of this number. The rest were from labor unions, communists, or republicans loyal to Madrid. The commander, Llano de la Encomienda, had ten additional battalions from Asturias and Santander, but as there was friction between these two groups and the rest of northern Spain, they were kept apart. Because of local politics and the North's tense relationship with Madrid, weapons were always in short supply, as was food. Chickpeas brought in from Mexico saved more than a few lives, military and civilian, during the first year of the war. Also, by the end of the war, few cats could be found in the North. The Basque Navy off the Catabrian coast was in equally dismal shape, having only one older destroyer and two submarines that were a constant challenge to keep going. As such, to augment the naval forces in the north, four deep-sea fishing vessels had 101mm guns mounted on them. Many contemporaries blamed this sad state of affairs on Captain Enrique Navarro, but it must be asked, how was he to perform miracles with such little resources? Now that Berlin had convinced Franco to make a go of the north, it was prudent to first control the coastline. So nationalist patrols were established. This paid off because on March 5th, the nationalist cruiser Canarias was seen near a river at Bilbao. She had just captured the Estonian cargo ship, the Yorkbrook, which was loaded down with weapons for the Republicans. And food. The Basques desperately needed those supplies, which probably explains what they did next. Basque shore batteries of 105mm and 155mm guns started firing at the Canarias when it was spotted, hoping to help the Yorkbrook escape. The land-based guns were also trying to buy time, as they had been told the armed trawlers were en route. Soon enough, three of them came upon the scene, out of the mist. The Canarias left the cargo ship and charged at the three smaller vessels which worked out for them, as one of them, the Bizkaya, peeled away to assist the Yorkbrook in escaping. And just to show that the Basque men aboard the trawlers were just as fierce as their landed counterparts, as the two vessels came on with their inferior eight-inch guns, one of them stayed in the fight as long as she dared. Only after taking a beating and losing several crewmen did she pull away to get under the protective umbrella of the shore guns. This left the Nambara alone to continue the fight, which she did. The crew stayed past the coming of night, past the point where they ran out of ammunition, and up to the point where the ship was sunk by the nationalist cruiser. The remaining crew of the Nambara then swam for shore. Heroes. However, the nationalists had one major drawback, its commanding general in the area. Emilio Mola. His hesitancy in starting a major operation, because he focused on losses and not gains, frustrated not only his staff, but the Germans and the Italians trying to help. Fortunately for Franco, who could not be everywhere at once, Colonel Juan Vigon was a part of that staff, and the Germans considered him to be the most professional soldier in the Nationalist Army. Because of the geography of northern Spain, with its mountains and narrow sections of flat land, the Condor Legion would prove invaluable. There were only so many places the Basque aerodromes could be, so the Germans knew where to bomb. Not that the Republican Air Force was all that large. As General Sparrow stayed close to Franco's headquarters in Salamanca, Colonel Wolfram von Richthofen would run daily operations. He had three squadrons of Ju-52 bombers, a squadron of Heinkel 111 medium bombers, and three squadrons of Heinkel 51 fighters, and a few Messerschmitt 109s, though more would be coming later. 
The Italians would add to this air arm with Sovia Machetti 81s and 79 bombers, along with their Fiat CR-32 fighters. The all-too-conservative General Mola started his offensive with a threat. On March 31st, he sent out the following. I have decided to terminate rapidly in the war in the North. Those not guilty of assassinations and who surrender their arms will have their lives and property spared. But if submission is not immediate, I will raise Vizcaya to the ground, beginning with the industries of war. As can be imagined, the hardy men of the Spanish North did not surrender. Not that they had time to think it over. On that same day, the Condor Legion, based in Vitoria in the northeast, bombed the city of Durango to its northwest, just behind the front lines. The Nationalists would be coming from the east and south, gobbling up Basque territory as they went. Sadly, Durango, of some 10,000 people, had no defenses, air or ground, but were bombed nonetheless by the German and Italian planes. A church was directly hit during Mass, which killed 14 nuns, the priest, and 250 of the congregation. Also attacked were the three mountain outposts held by the Republicans since late the previous year at Albertia, Maroto, and Harinto. First, the Germans came in around 8 a.m., and according to Richthofen, 60 tons of bombs were dropped within two minutes. Added to this impressive display of modern warfare, an artillery barrage commenced. Only afterward did Navarrese troops of Colonel Alonso Vega storm the outposts. They were taken without much loss of nationalist life. To the southwest of Durango, at Mount Gorbia, the Basques counterattacked another invading force there, and they would win that day, but the height would only be in their hands for another two months. Just south of Durango, at the town of Ochandiano, the Nationalists, with overwhelming air support, carried the day on April 4th. With this Nationalist victory came some 400 Basque deaths and 600 more prisoners. The defense of Basque line had just been breached. Yet suddenly the next day, April 5th, General Mola, panicking, sent down an order to halt the offensive. Richtofen screamed in protest. He had been sending letters to Sparrow of the many Republican bodies scattered around the various battlefields. He poured his anger and frustration into a letter. War here is so tedious a business. First Spaniards are brought to an operation. Then operational orders have to be worked through. Then reconnaissance. Then visiting headquarters. Look at the operational orders and suggest changes. Then checking if orders have gone out and were followed. With the northern invasion in abeyance, Franco's government announced to the world on April 6th the blockade of all Republican ports of the Catabrian coast. Franco was assured of victory here, but it could only be to the good if the people that were resisting him were weak with starvation. But on that very first day, a British merchantman selling into Bilbao with food was stopped by the nationalist cruiser Amirante Cervera, supported by the Admiral Graf Spee of Germany. The merchantmen radioed for help, and soon the HMS Blanche and Brazen arrived, already patrolling the bay. The British ship was allowed to make port. As already covered, many people of important positions in London, including the Royal Navy, were on the nationalist side. Hence, advised the Prime Minister Baldwin not to allow any other British ships to travel to the northern ports. The word was dutifully sent out that future ships, instead of making for Bilbao, were to await further instructions at the French port Saint-Jean-de-Luz. The word was that mines had been laid by the nationalists, and their ships had been ordered to fire on any other ships bringing in supplies. As London did not want to be involved in this fight, but needed to save face, the HMS Hood was sent to the Bay of Biscay. But on April 20th, the captain of the British merchantman Seven Sea Spray 
made up his own mind, and left Saint-Jean-de-Luz for Bilbao. When the vessel arrived, offloading the foodstuffs, there had been no nationalist ships to contend with, nor mines. The locals rejoiced in the British crew's bravery. When word of this got out, all the other British supply ships stuck at the French port, made for Bilbao. Now it was clear that starvation would not be a factor in this battle. But that mattered little to the Nationalists, as they had the Condor Legion. As the Nationalists continued to push relatively easy, the defenders, many of the Basque troops themselves, retreated north to Guernica, along the coast. When this was reported, Franco would turn to General Spiro and request a major bombing operation. Up until this point, Guernica had seen no fighting. Hello everyone, Ray here. So these are the episodes for July. I'm going to work on the next ones for next weekend, which will be for the August episodes, and we'll be all caught up. I'm very sorry. Um, and again, I'm giving away uh, um, another Harry set. This is probably the nicest one I've ever given away. So please enter for, or for the drawing. Go to wwiipodcast at gmail.com. And don't don't laugh, but in the subject area, put Big Daddy Ray. It's, a, it's an inside joke. Anyway, so submit that, and I'll do the drawing in about two, maybe three weeks. And, of course, I'll bring the kids in so they can do it, so they enjoy that a lot. And now that I'm back in your good graces, hopefully, if you could take a short survey for me, please, I would really appreciate it. The address to type in is http colon slash slash survey dot libsyn dot com slash WWII podcast. Thank you very much. And this will be in the show notes as well. And once again, just thank you for your patience. Um, still getting in the groove of things after getting back from Australia and New Zealand. But I will have the August episodes of membership out to you very soon. Take care, everyone.